Corn, and I am your host here at the Queen's Chamber podcast. I also happen to be CEO and founder of Rise Rain Roll. I am a recovering financial advisor, lover of life, and definitely hiker trash. Most importantly in my world, it's about bringing light into the space of entrepreneurship, business ownership, and leadership for the inroads of the nonconformists. You see, I am blessed with this chronic curiosity for amazing people doing incredible things. And so here we focus on value-only content, but if you'd like to connect with us on Rise Rain Roll in Instagram or TikTok as well, you will be able to DM us topics, perspectives, and requests that we actually listen to. So welcome. I want to thank you deeply for tuning in. We do talk about raw topics of being an entrepreneur, a leader, especially a multi-diverse leader, sharing strategies, digging into all of the things spicy. Thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Oh my gosh, ladies, what an incredible groundbreaking podcast in my opinion. You know, I think it's such a beautiful thing to illuminate the complexities of women's health. And to be very frank, when I was a financial advisor, I barely had time to go to the doctor, let alone think about taking a bathroom break. And when it comes to women's health, it's a complex topic that is seemingly insurmountable in many ways, where from fertility to reproductive medicine to everything in between, it's such a cumbersome endeavor. And at the end of the day, after you've been done running your business and doing all the things that you need to do, it's probably the last thing that you're thinking about. So I wanted to bring you an episode that could bring you closer, that's guided by wisdom and insights that you can actually rely on. So Dr. Wertheimer is an acclaimed OBGYN and combines her multifaceted medical expertise with this deep commitment to educating and empowering women. It was such a refreshing interview and you are about to dive into it. So she is multi-diverse. She has the highest quality of care and understanding for women during their fertility journey. And apart from her clinical practice, she is a dynamic figure where she not only chairs the Women's Health Committee, but also is a dynamic figure in the JOWMA, which is Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. She is a cornerstone of women's health education, and she has thousands of live viewers eager to gain insights on their well-being because they know that going to Dr. Wertheimer is the best. Not only that, she dives into touch of the understanding of the epigenetics that she is in deep wisdom about. And it was such a refreshing discussion that I know that she'll be back on our podcast very soon. So join us in this episode of Women's Health Uncovered, and we are going to explore the complexities in OBGYN and also understanding fertility, reproductive health, and the journey alongside it whether you are somebody that is beginning to navigate this or starting to think about it or maybe procrastinating about it, let's dive in through a lens of compassion and great communication. I hope you enjoy. 
Dr. Wertheimer, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Really, really excited to chat with you about fertility and all things in that space. Take a moment, tell me a little bit about your journey into women's health and fertility and how you got here. What was your story? Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. Love to see other girl bosses out there working women. I tell all my patients, we love to support working women, whatever we can do. And the way I kind of entered into this field really was kind of just like a, maybe a classic story. I had a teacher in high school who was very open with her fertility journey. And she shared with us how IVF kind of changed her life life. And from that moment, I think I was a little bit like starstruck. I just thought that's the coolest thing I could potentially do with my life. And through med school and OBGYN, it just every single step of the journey really reaffirmed to me that this is what I wanted to be doing. As an Orthodox Jewish person, as a Persian, as a daughter of Persian immigrants, women's health has always been something that's of paramount importance, but yet so not spoken about mostly because of the issues of modesty and privacy surrounding the issue. And so I'm really passionate about educating educating women and giving them the knowledge that they need to access care, to be a better self-advocate. And so I love what you're doing for me and for all your women audience. I love that so much. Female leaders and business owners tend to be on the go all of the time and our health takes very much the backseat. It's not something Absolutely. we tend to focus on and we kicking it down the road. When it comes totally. to women's health and that being something that is our tendency what would be something that you would just kind of nudge against? Like, hey, maybe you should do these things. What are like the first couple of steps that our ladies could take around that space? Yeah, absolutely. This totally resonates. I've had an ear infection for a week. I kept not going. And then finally yesterday, my husband was like, just go to urgent care, take an hour. He's like, you have a raging infection. So thank God. Yeah, no, no, we're good now. But that's put our health on the back burner for sure. I would say that I really want to see women having annual appointment with their OBGYN. We do also kind of overlap with some of the primary care space. And so there's a lot of coordination of your care that we can do. There's a lot of education that we can do. The reproductive years are so critical for so many reasons. One is birth control. There are women who don't want to get pregnant and how do we help them prevent pregnancy? And then the other is for those who do want to get pregnant, not either now or in the future, just some critical knowledge at this point before it becomes kind of too late in my field as a fertility doctor, we want to see everyone pregnant yesterday. So time is really of the essence. And I just think it's, there's so that point of connection with your OBGYN can get you started on so many different journeys. And it could also not, you could be the person that says that's not important to me, but knowledge is power. And that's the first thing I'd love to see people do just get in to see your OBGYN. So we have clients in all journeys from figuring out what kind of birth control feels right for them to some clients that get a lot of information off of TikTok and Instagram. And we know how misinformation happens in those spaces to women who are perhaps thinking about, is it time for me to freeze my eggs? All different types of stages. From the very beginning, I feel that many of us don't really know what questions to ask. And we kind of become a little reactive based on what we see 
in that misinformation. Is there a way that we could be guided with how to prepare to meet with our OBGYN in those checkups annually or how we ask some of these questions? Because I think some shame and embarrassment comes up with that, but also like we're in such a rush. Yeah, we're in a rush. And unfortunately, sometimes your OBGYN is in a rush and it makes you feel like you shouldn't ask questions. I would say first and foremost, your appointment and your time with your doctor is your time. And they may be putting out vibes that they're in a rush but they want to be there for you too. And you need to take that time and don't let anyone intimidate you out of getting the answers to your questions. And I think even as simple as starting with, I'm concerned about my fertility or I started to think about family planning and even just give that to them and they will know where to go with it. You know, I'm thinking about preventing pregnancy. I haven't been able to find the right birth control and let them kind of take that conversation. You just need to give a very small bit and we'll know what direction to take it in. I would also say that if you're not getting that support or that direction or that let me help you figure out what you want, then maybe that's not the right doctor for you. And you really need to find the person who you feel like meets your needs. Now, you mentioned something really interesting that the years that women are in those reproductive years, there are roles of health that are multi-complex ushered into the awareness of that. What's the role of like diet, exercise, sleep, stress that has on our reproductive years? And how does that affect us as we're moving through life? Yeah. Ideally, we all want to be our best selves. We want to be on a diet that is well-rounded. So I really do not like diets that cut out one food group completely. Fat, cholesterol actually gives you estrogen and testosterone. So you need fat, even the bad kind, LDL, cholesterol. And things like protein is essential. Carbs, I don't like to see people cut out carbs either. Mediterranean diet, one that involves lean proteins, healthy fats, complex carbs is really the best. Exercise is paramount to your health. You are losing bone mass and muscle mass as you get older. And the only way to combat that is in the gym, lifting weights, and it'll just keep you younger and more physically fit and functional. Something I think that we don't talk about often is that, yeah, we want to look great. We want to try on our clothes and feel like we look good and we look pretty. But working out is really not only about that. It's about functional strength. You're going to be a mom one day, maybe, and you're going to need to lift those kids. And you don't want to be the person, trust me, (laughs) from personal experience, who is seeing a physical therapist in their 30s. But at the same time, see a physical therapist if you need to. I'm also a very big advocate for physical (laughs) therapists. I just, it's just about, it's about prioritizing, prioritizing yourself sometimes to be a better person at work, to be a better mom, you really need to prioritize, take that hour of physical therapy, take that hour in the gym. Preventative is always the best. So diet, exercise, sleep. That being said, a lot of us have very demanding jobs. You know, as a resident, we worked 80 hours a week. It was really just not possible to be the health. It's, it's ironic, but it really was not possible to be that healthy of a person. And so you kind of that's the other place where at that point you want your doctor to kind of meet you where you're at and help you with what with what you are able to do. Just because you brought it up and because I'm a very big believer in uh, environmental toxins, I think, you know, it's a great place. People are always looking to say, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And there's the truth is there's very little that's in your control. Fertility is for better, for worse, really not your fault. But the very little that you can do that might be helpful to your overall long-term health. And also right now in terms of trying to preserve equality is to try and avoid what's called endocrine disruptors, which are essentially 
form are essentially at this age of, you know, 21st century where everything is chemical and synthetic and processed. A lot of synthetics are utilizing structures that are chemical structures that are very similar to our hormones. And so it could kind of get in the way of your body's functioning and environmentalists are lead are linking these environmental toxins to the increasing rates of cancers, obesity, PCOS, thyroid disease, and saying that that's got to be playing a role. Otherwise, the numbers, the increase doesn't really make sense. You know, everybody knows about bisphenol A, BPA. It says it on everything. BPA-free, BPA-free. Bisphenol A is just one form of bisphenol. There's bisphenols S, bisphenol F, there's parabens, phthalates. We just don't like the, the data on BPA was very incriminating and the FDA has outlawed it, but there are other ones that the data is kind of up and coming. And I also want patients to not be crazy. You live in the 21st <laughs> century. You can't avoid toxins, but if you can learn what they are and decrease your exposure, it can truly go a long way. So, you know, like major offenders would be plastics. Don't put your plastic Tupperware in the dishwasher or the microwave. The heat leaches the chemicals into food. If you can, glass is even better. Fragrances is a very big offender. So, you know, I love fragrances. I love a nice scented candle, but try not to. Try to use fragrance-free detergent, essential oils as fragrances whenever possible. A lot of data is coming out now that tea tree oil, which we thought was super healthy, is an endocrine disruptor. Yeah. So it's it, again, and yeah, again, you could literally look around your house and be like, oh shoot, like, you know, everything's toxic, but it's really just about decreasing your exposure level even a little bit. That's incredible. I think that sometimes we have these like certain assumptions that are, I'm just going to go there that are TikTok worthy or TikTok trendy. Right. And they're yes get really obsessed over very interesting topics and it doesn't necessarily follow logic. And so being very aware to where education specialists are in these spaces is vitally important in my opinion, because I feel it's not spoken of as, as frequently and as, as clearly as you're describing it. I mean, you're being very factual and very direct. I love that because it's such a value add around the aspects of navigating any sort of uh, health part. Of Absolutely. You know, TikTok, there's very little that I think I happen to think, you know, there, for all that we shit on social media, uh, social media is an incredibly powerful and empowering tool. And it's a great way of educating young people. That being said, we have to be teaching our consumers how to be a little bit more discerning. You know, that a 15 second clip on TikTok is just not going to put things in the perspective that you might. So yes, could spandex underwear be a little bit toxic? Sure. If you're smoking marijuana or you're smoking cigarettes, is that way more toxic? Yes. So, you know, if there's one thing that you need to get rid of to improve your health, it's not going to be the spandex underwear first. So it's like these like little things where things just get really trendy and they go viral and people forget about the big picture. And we're seeing that in all aspects of social media, right? Politics and everything else. But I think one thing that I would love to see, and I've put this out there before into the into the metaverse, I would love to see that uh, board certified medical professionals get a different type of check, you know, like an orange check or something. Something that says this person has passed multiple exams, they're evidence-based, they're not just trying to sell you the latest, I don't know, supplement or whatever. You know, that would be great if we could help people to figure it out. 
I love that. That's a, that's vitally, it creates such a depth of awareness because I feel that, well, many of my clients have been in situations where they're at networking groups or so on and so forth. And there are people that are selling vitamins and selling nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. Juices, juice cleanses, everything. Oh my gosh. And from like foot detoxes, I have ended up in the hospital or certain uh, proteins or meal replacement end oh up goodness. in the hospital yeah. because their, <laughs> their whole system was already shaky at best because of the stress that they're placing themselves in day in and day out for such long periods of time. Yeah. And so I guess my question for you is like, are there specific ways that we can, or places that we can go to get some of these things double checked? Like how can we learn about that stuff? And if somebody's listening, that's going to be very proactive. Like what could she do to educate in these areas, but also really manage the information? Is there a specific location? Yeah. I mean, listen, you're a lot of doctors now are taking to TikTok and to Instagram and they identify themselves in some sort of way. MD or DO are the two certifications of doctors. You know, somebody who says that they just put doctor, that's actually why I specifically did not write Dr. Sahar Wertheimer on my handle because people are using doctor if they got a doctorate in something and their doctorate could be in social work. And then all of a sudden they decided they're the expert in hormones, you know, so it's really, you want to make sure that somebody's degree matches their profession. Just because you have a degree doesn't mean you know everything about everything. Yeah. (laughs) Another one is a very big red flag is if somebody's trying to sell you something, you really got to look into that, right? Like, and I'm not trying to knock, like, I'm sure there's dentists out there that are selling their own toothpaste good for them, but just look into it. You know, if somebody's trying to sell you a supplement, is there motivation for educating you to get you to buy the supplement or are they giving good facts? You know, if you're, I can only really speak to the medical world because that's what I know. But if you're a medical professional, a physician, you have to have gone through board certification by the board of your field. So for obstetrics and gynecology, it's the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, AMOG. If you're a subspecialist, you have to take a second set of boards. So reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, it's, it's a mouthful, but that's what I do. We've taken OBGYN boards and then REI boards for our subspecialty. And so these are all things that are publicly available. You can actually Google your doctor and see if they're board certified. There's websites that let you put in their name and find their license. So these are all kind of background check things that you can do to ensure that the information and the person that you're seeing is legit, but not just legit, held to certain standards. There are There's somebody that's checking in on them every once in a while and making sure that their clinic and their lab is held up to certain standards. Love that. I come from a very medical-based background. And I will also tell my listeners that in conjunction with what Dr. Wertheimer is saying, also what I'll do is I'll print out an NCIB research article or something of like where I found the information and take it with me to my doctor's appointment and put it in front of them. Because usually if there's something that is coming up for me, it's coming from a place of I've researched it. I'm in that space. I'm very aware of why I just want to get the double check. So very, very, very much recommend looking at research articles, reading them. It's not going to be beyond you. Some of it might be confusing, but I encourage you to like try to read it, try to learn it. Absolutely. And to that point, if somebody's educating you on something on social media, you have all the right in the world to say, what are your sources for this? Because especially as Western physicians, we really do, we're supposed to be rooting ourselves in evidence-based medicines, studies, you know, randomized control trials. And so a lot of what we, and, and we'll admit it, if we say this isn't really based on data, it's kind of anecdotal or it's on experience, you know, 
somebody should be able to identify to you why they came to the conclusion they came to. So from a perspective of fertility and reproductive years specifically, when a woman is enduring stress, how does it affect her body? How does it affect fertility? Uh, Is that really true? Or is that like more of like a woo-woo idea? So the idea that stress can impact your hormonal access is true. However, I think it's taken it's taken a little dramatically. So in general, you know, you have a brain to ovary access of hormones and there's a bunch of different pathways and they're all kind of interconnected and they affect each other. So you have your brain to ovary access of your hormones for fertility. And similarly, you have a brain to adrenal access, a different hormone and organ, cortisol. And cortisol is your stress hormone. And cortisol, the interplay, you can shut down your fertility access if you're too stressed. But usually the type of stress that leads to that kind of increased rise in cortisol is extreme bodily. It's causing bodily lack of sleep, lack of eating, a flight or fight response. So people who are really eating very little or anorexic, that can, that's why we see periods shut down in those patients. And similarly, you know, somebody who might be very sick, cancer or something like that. Could the regular stress of your work environment cause you to have fertility issues? I would say it depends. And these days we are so stressed at work. I mean, you know, you have investment bankers working over a hundred hours a week. You have ER physicians working kind of shifts at all hours. Their body doesn't know a regular circadian rhythm. So I, I do think it's possible, but your vital sign in that regard is your period. If cortisol is going to be so high that it's affecting your fertility, you're going to see changes in your menstrual cycle. So that's why we like to teach the menstrual cycle kind of a fifth vital sign. That's yeah. amazing. I actually got a question from one of my clients. She was asking, you know, every time I go to the OBGYN, she's like, I don't even know when to start the day one of my period or moon cycle. She's like, I don't understand. You know, is it when I'm actually bleeding? Is it like when that brown kind of discharge is coming through? She's like, it's just so confusing to me. So I just kind of guesstimate. Is- you know, I love, I love talking to people because I love getting ideas of like Instagram posts that I should do in the future. This is such a common question. Literally, I probably get it once a day. It probably is deserving of based on the grid. The answer is it's your first full day of flow. And the reason is because you can have some spotting before your first full day of flow. And that's that sometimes I don't want to freak anyone out, but sometimes if you have spotting before your first full day of flow, it could be a a sign of decreasing ovarian reserve that causes your hormones to kind of act in a way where you have a little bit of uh, spotting before. I would say biggest sign just for curb that a little bit and make people a little bit less. The biggest sign of decreasing ovarian reserve is a shortening cycle. If you previously had a 28-day cycle and now you're seeing a 26-day cycle, you know, it might be time to check in about your ovarian reserve. If your period every month is just spotting, like that's all you do, then I would say the first day of spotting. But if you typically do get a, a full flow, first full day of flow is your first day of your cycle. Amazing. Amazing. So what, as far as, you know, when they're looking at the journey of fertility and they aren't in, they're maybe in between a variety of ideas, they're not completely clear on, you know, oh, I definitely want a family or I don't want a family. You know, this question of like freezing eggs just seems like such a big leap because of the cost the types of responsibilities that they might be having to experience and they don't really know what that looks like. Can you take us through like what that kind of dynamic would be healthfully envisioned for our listeners? 
Do you mean like what an egg freezing cycle would look like or what the process decision-making process? I think let's start with the decision-making process. Yeah. And then the uh, egg freezing, the egg freezing journey. Yeah. Listen, uh, as a fertility doctor, I'm a little bit biased. Even if you're not sure if you want to have family in the future, I would say freeze your eggs. And the reason is because in my job, I see so many women that didn't think they wanted to have a family and then they come in and they're, it's so much later in life and it becomes more and more limited what we can do as somebody gets older. I would say take advantage of the time now, do an egg freezing cycle. Nothing is guaranteed in life nothing, not even an egg freezing cycle, but it is a really good insurance policy. And I've, I have yet to hear a woman say that she regrets, even if she hasn't come back to use her eggs. So I, I, I use that kind of as my barometer. I don't think you're ever going to regret giving yourself a little bit of an option in the future. And what's the harm in going to do a consult and getting educated, you know, and then making a decision. I know the cost barrier is a big one. And I told Rebecca this before, but we're currently doing a promotion of uh, $5,900 all-inclusive for an egg freezing cycle. We're going to extend it to January. And I think that's so great for so many women for whom cost is a barrier. In the future, I'd love to see insurances cover egg freezing. It's so important. And some of the big employers out there, like uh, Google, Fox, uh, some of the, you know, Amazon, they are covering, they have very good benefits for their employees. And I'd, I'd love to see more employers do that. So in terms of what the egg freezing process looks like, you know, egg freezing and IVF, egg freezing is just the first step of IVF. And so it's a little bit less involved in a sense that we just need to, you know, I like to describe IVF as three parts. Part one, we get the eggs out. Part two, we fertilize them, grow them to embryos. Part three, we put them back when you're ready. That could be the next month, could be years down the line. So in an egg freezing cycle, all we're doing is getting the eggs out, part one, and then we're freezing them. And it requires, I would say, two and a half intense weeks. And the rest is kind of not as intense. So what I mean by that is usually we start with a birth control lead-in. And I know a lot of women don't like to be put on birth control pills. We can work with you and do other things. The birth control is to suppress ovary so that you don't have any kind of follicles like in your normal cycle that jump ahead because we really want to get as many follicles as you have in the beginning of your cycle to grow. I kind of feel like I need to step back and explain that. Love that. You did that. That was awesome. Okay. So essentially you have this background vault of, of hundreds of thousands of eggs and every month a group is coming to the front of the ovary and one of them gets chosen by your body to be the egg that you're going to ovulate. So what we do in egg freezing and IVF is we get in there before that egg is going to be chosen and we try and get all of that to grow. So in the egg freezing cycle, that lead-in period of birth control pills, you could be anywhere. We don't need you in town. We don't need to be testing you. We just need to have coordinated something ahead of time. And then you're going to be on the injections, the hormonal injections for about two weeks. And during that time period, that's what I like to say is kind of intense and a little bit invasive. You're going to need to be here almost every other day for a transvaginal ultrasound and blood work. I would say most women end up needing about five, six appointments. And then during that time, we're monitoring the growth of your eggs. And we're saying, hey, they're growing a little fast. Go down on your meds. They're growing a little slow. Go up on your meds. So we're really in touch with you. We have had patients that, you know, need to go somewhere and we try, again, we try to support you, but the best if you could be in town two weeks. And then when your eggs look like they're ready, we trigger you and 36 hours later is your retrieval. So I would say most women need about 11 days of hormones. And then the 36 hours later puts you at day 13 for your retrieval. That's why I say two weeks. And then you're done. You go home and you can, a lot of women go back to work the next day. It's, it's nice if you can take off the next day too. You might still be groggy from anesthesia. 
And then your ovaries during the next two weeks are kind of shrinking back down to their normal size. So that's why I say it's too intense. I would say if you have a really robust ovarian reserve, your recovery process is a little bit longer. You're still going to be feeling a little bit bloated for about a week. And if you don't have a great reserve, you'll be feeling normal probably right away. But most women, by the time they get their next period, which is two weeks after their trigger injection, they're feeling back to normal, totally back to normal. That's amazing. I, I've always imagined it to be so uh, laborious and painful and difficult. It is. I would say it is. A lot of times, I mean, I try, I really try to manage expectations because I think that's really the biggest, that's where the biggest disconnect happens. It, it can be tough and everybody's different. I have some patients that were like, that was a walk park thought it was going to be harder. And then I have other patients that are like, oh my God, that was so much worse than I thought it was going to be. And the number one question I get is like, okay, like what's the main side effect? And I'll tell you straight, it's, you're going to feel bloated and you're going to be moody. (laughs) Tell everyone to stay out of your way for a couple of weeks. (laughs) Nobody picking any fights for those two weeks. I I love the, I love the honesty and the rawness that you, you approach medicine because I think that in a lot of the ways that we see things, we just don't know how to plan. We don't know how to about it. We don't know how to, you know, what are the stages? How do I even think about that? And then when we hear the words IVF, it's almost, or the letters IVF, it's almost as though we associate that with so many other things. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah. So like I said, IVF is kind of taking the egg freezing to the next step. So if you're with your lifetime partner already, heterosexual partner, then we can go ahead and fertilize those eggs right away. We don't, we don't prefer to freeze them as eggs. We prefer to freeze them as embryos. If you have that lifetime partner or that donor sperm, whatever it may be. And then we grow them to embryos and then from, and that takes about a week. And then we biopsy the embryos for genetics to make sure it's a healthy embryo. If you had a genetic disease that you wanted to check the embryos for, for example, the breast cancer gene, BRCA, we can do that at that point. And that takes about two weeks to come back. And then once we have that back, it'll probably coincide with when you're getting your period. We'll start prepping you for the transfer of your embryo, if that's what you want. I have some couples that say, you know, we're going to go enjoy our last hurrah without kids. I have couples that say, we're just doing this because we want to try in two years and we want to preserve. There's all sorts of combinations, but at that point, we start preparing your lining for transfer. And then, uh, and that can be done either using your natural cycle or using medications. We place that embryo back and then the two week, the famous two week wait, waiting for the pregnancy test starts. So what I think people mean when they think about all of that IVF entails is really that roller coaster. There's no point at which I can tell you, you know, everything's fine. You're going to have your baby. I mean, I, I like to give that reassurance. I think you're going to be, most women have a good prognosis. IVF is so amazing. It does wonders, but there's no moment of relief. And, you know, it's like, it's okay, we, we've passed this hurdle. What's the next one? What's the next one? So it's, it's truly a journey. And even when women get pregnant after they've suffered with infertility, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so, you know, getting the mental support, getting, you know, your people or your therapist or whoever it is in place is really, really crucial. Well, I love that recommendation. I think that's really powerful. So there's also been some questions. Will I end up with, I'm just going to ask it because this was the question. Am I going to end up with sex tablets if I do IVF was the question. So yeah, to hear your response to that. It yeah. made me giggle. I thought it was, I thought it was really darling question. I also think that there is that association, you know, for a lot yeah. of people 
that were in, what is it, the 90s or early 2000s, we were watching a variety of of television shows that were showing stuff like uh, John plus Kate plus eight or something, or Octomom was it? Yes, I think that, so there's been a very big shift in IVF. I would say that in current day IVF, if you're getting sex tablets, your doctor did something wrong. I would say, you know, in the past, we used to put back as many embryos uh, because we thought that would give patients a better chance of getting pregnant. Now we know that with IVF and tested embryos, patients have a really good chance of getting pregnant. The point that we don't want to put back more than one tested embryo at a time. So you actually, we, we call it single embryo transfer. It is our governing body's recommendation in a good prognosis patient. There are some cases where that there is exceptions and we put back more embryos. But in the in the regular patient, we really advocate for one single embryo. Every once in a while, I have a patient that says, I really want twins. And I'll say, I don't recommend twins. And that's why, you know, twins come with a lot of extra risk. And the one I think the parents care the most about is prematurity, which can sometimes lead to, you know, developmental delays that don't go away. But for the most part, we all know patients with parents with twins and twins are fine. So I, I think of it as like the quote unquote acceptable risk. If the patient's been counseled fully, I usually have them see a maternal fetal medicine doctor as well to get the full counseling of twins. If they keep insisting we want twins, then I really believe in patient autonomy and we'll put back two embryos. But couples should always know that each embryo has about a 2% chance splitting into twins as well. So, you know, you could put back two and end up with triplets and we, I've seen it. So these are all things to keep in mind. You know, there's something called multifetal reduction where you can actually abort selectively one of fetuses and lower the risk the remaining pregnancy. It's a full conversation, but sex tablets really should not be happening. Interesting. You um, might have the ability to control how many embryos are being attacked. There are other treatment options before IVF, like ovulation induction using a pill or with injections. Sometimes that causes you to ovulate more than one egg, so two or three. Um, and sometimes people have a hyperstim response and they have six mature follicles. I would say that when I see a patient who it's their first cycle and I see six mature follicles, I'm canceling. Like that's not somebody I want to put at risk. If a patient has, you know, some sort of history of like not getting pregnant for years and we've tried multiple cycles with three follicles, nothing took. And this time they happen to have six. It's a different conversation, but we're typically very conservative. But when you do the ovulation induction with the pills, you do have about a 5% risk of planning. To me, this just highlights, you know, the relationship that you desire to have with your physician of choice and learning this with Dr. Wertheimer is just an amazing opportunity to have you here. So thank you again for when it comes to like ending the freeze relationship. One of my ladies questions were, am I committing murder by discarding an embryo? That's an interesting ethical question. I personally don't think so. I would say, you know, it really depends on where your view of where life begins. This kind of let the, the opposite side of this is Roe v. Wade, right? So it's a really charged conversation. I think that it can be an ethical conversation, it can be a religious conversation. What does your religious body tell you? It, there's so many ways to go. You know, an egg is not, an egg itself is really not, it has no potential for life. It needs to be fertilized for the second half. So a lot of times this conversation happens with embryos and discarding embryos. Can I discard them? Should I keep them frozen forever? Can I donate them to science? I would say consult your ethical guidance people. And that is something that you will be like when you sign your paperwork with the lab and storage, those are all questions that you're going to confront. What do you, do you want to keep these in storage? If you, we typically keep things in storage until somebody tells us I want to discard them and then they need to, you know, sign the paperwork. So it's a, it's a 
conversation. Powerful. So a lot of my business owners are female. They're also solopreneurs or they run their own business. Also high-performing leaders, you know, when they're navigating fertility treatments or having these conversations, what are the things that you would recommend that they have in their mind or what kind of advice would you give them to effectively start this path? Is it something that'll take a ton of their time? Is it really laborious from a perspective of consideration, et cetera? would love to hear that. Yeah, you know, type A women are my jam. I am one. <laughs> it takes one to know one. And I just like to think about what is it that I would want to know that would put me at ease. Yes, it's going to be a little bit intense in the sense that you need to come in for your transvaginal ultrasound and your blood work. And we, there's no surrogate way to do that. So, you know, you're going to need to take an hour out of the office. We try very hard to get you in to do your blood and transvaginal ultrasound and then you leave. And we call you later that day with your results and your follow-up instructions. So we don't keep you waiting for results or anything like that. We try to make it as efficient as possible. We're doing, you know, our lab does thousands of cycles a year. And so we're very, uh, we're a well-oiled machine. I would say that you need to have also the mental space for this, right? Often things don't go according to plan. There'll be something that pops up and we're going to do our best to keep you to your timeline. You should be very vocal about what your priorities are. You know, I might have a patient who's very high profile attorney who has a million cases and she only has these two weeks. And she's like, I don't care if it's a suboptimal cycle. I just need to do it now. Versus you might have somebody else that says, you know, I just want the best outcome. I'm only doing this once. You tell me when to do it. So it's, it's really, I really like to take into my patient's goals into account. But I would say, you know, find yourself two weeks where you can come a little bit late to work, maybe, you know, four or five times in those two weeks and make the mental space for it, you know, and, and, and do it, do it for yourself. It's literally, it gives you back some power. It gives you, it's, I like to say, let's reframe it as empowering as opposed to, oh, you know, it's so sad. I don't have a partner at this point, or it's so sad. I don't have kids at this point. It's like, actually, you know, you have a great career. You have like all these other things going for you. And this is just, you know, something that you can kind of do or take back a little bit of control. I love that you just said that because I think when it comes to these questions, a lot of times we do feel such shame and such heaviness around it. And we expect ourselves to have like all of the answers. And I think that if you are just taking it one step at a time and allowing yourself to explore those layers, you're absolutely right. Doing it truly for themselves is such an empowering stance of of really reframing that aspect. When it comes to planning for maternity or maternity leave eventually and the path of pregnancy, many of them who are solopreneurs and run their own businesses, what kind of wisdom could you give a first-time mom in that circumstance, assuming that she decided to go through with it and maybe she's doing it on her own? Uh, maybe Maybe it's not a conventional track for her. What does that look like? Yeah, you know, I think in general, this country is so bad at maternity and postpartum care. And I love to see people raising awareness about that because getting pregnant is really just the first part. And then there's the pregnancy, right? Pregnancy is hard. And we're supposed to, what's that quote about working women? We're supposed to show up at work like we don't have a home and we're supposed to show up at home like we don't work. I think it's, unfortunately, it's still true today. And the reality is when you're pregnant and you're full term, you're waddling, you're not comfortable and people want you to be performing at the same level. And even somebody like me, I'm, I'm an OBGYN. We should be the most empathetic to pregnant women. Right. And I was working until 41 weeks and zero days till I literally had contractions and went into labor with my first. 
during residency. Yeah, we it was not, it is unfortunately medicine has a ways to go in terms of, but anyways, separate conversation for a separate time. But yeah, we need to be more supportive of women and we need to make space for, I mean, we're, this is the future generation, right? We need to make space for this. And especially in the postpartum area, uh, postpartum period, we call it the fourth trimester. Women are only getting one follow-up appointment with their OB at six weeks. Insurances should be covering more than that. Insurances should be covering mandatory physical therapy. You know, in France, I think I was told women have three months of physical therapy after they give birth. In Israel, they get two mandatory visits. There there needs to be more follow-up postpartum because of mental health, because it's postpartum, I found to be the hardest part of the whole thing. I mean, you're leaking from everywhere. You're very sore. Your muscles are exhausted. You're waking up, you know, every few hours and, and, you know, you have other responsibilities at the same time. It's hard. So I think we need to give people more support there. I think that women should be advocating for themselves. They should go to their doctor and say, I want a physical therapy referral because I think I cannot stress how important physical therapy and getting your pelvic floor back in shape, getting your core back to function, how important that is in the postpartum period. And all I can say to these, to any single mom or any mom that's kind of preparing for this journey is to make sure you have the support in place you know, whoever that may be, a support group, a therapist, and also to not, to not let your physical self kind of go to the wayside. If you need medication to help you with postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression, that's okay. That's very normal. And it doesn't mean you're going to be on medication forever. You know, there's one thing I learned in therapy is that life happens kind of like in periods and stages, and we just got to get through this stage and then we'll figure it out before. I think type A women, we want to know what the plan is for the next 10 years. And learning to kind of just go step by step is, is so good for your mental health. Such an empowering perspective that generates and really expands on such depth of peace and understanding. But I also really appreciate the way that you take things into bite-sized pieces. It's really a refreshing approach, in my opinion, and it really speaks to the way that you can communicate. And speaking of communication, you are fluent in English, Hebrew, and Farsi. Is this correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Yeah. What other weird facts are about you? Like what are the like like up outside the box type of things? I know I'm putting you on the on the spot right now, but I mean I'm I think my husband would argue I'm I'm weird. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are things. I think like that my my like little what's that like your icebreaker line or whatever? I did karate until I was a brown belt and then I quit. That's like one of I mean I was like in high school. What else? I'm a foodie. I don't know if that's weird, but I, I love food. <laughs> I don't know. Hot baths. Is that weird? I guess it's not weird either. I would say that, I don't know if it's, if it's weird. It's just that I think I come, I come off maybe in these type of podcasts or people say, you know, you're a doctor. How do you do it all? You're a mom. I want to be very clear. I do not do it all. I am surviving just like everybody else. And one of the best, and I'm barely surviving sometimes at that. <laughs> sometimes people are like, how do you do it all? I'm like, I'm really not sure I am doing it all. <laughs> but one of the best pieces of advice, speaking to that, what you were talking about before about bite-sized pieces, one of the best pieces of advice I got was when I was an intern, one of my seniors said to me, you will either be the intern that slept really well and is well-rested, or you'll be the intern that goes out and sees your friends and is social or you're going to be the really well-read intern, but you're never going to be all three at once. And I really took that to heart. And even in life beyond residency, it's really like, sometimes I'm the mom that is 
there for my kids and really, really good. Sometimes I'm the chef mom and I make really yummy food and I host people. And sometimes I'm just literally trying to survive. So I think that just that's a great perspective to keep in in our lives. So I appreciate that you appreciate that as well. And I, I, I'm sure as a girl boss who's leading other girl bosses, that's probably a very central part of what you do too. It's a beautiful thing to see women not only survive, but really start to thrive, even if it's just for the 10 minutes in the day that you got to, right? And so your commitment in this space around reproductive health and fertility and understanding what kind of access we have to people like you and being able to have such a frank conversation and being so real and so transparent inside of your social media, which is by the way, guys, that's where we met. We met on Instagram. I totally stalked her. It's flattering me, but thank you. I need to do better. But again, one of those hats that just is kind of like, okay, got to do this one day. Sometimes I'm a social media doctor, sometimes I'm really not. <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing to to see that your focus in that space is, is just, it's refreshing. And I think also yeah. your genomic focus is something that I would really love to have you on a future podcast to explore as well, because yes. I think that all of our ladies actually do a nebula genomic breakdown just to see like, Hey, what are the risk factors of like what I need to be focused on primarily? So yeah utilize that as a, as a point of kind of guiding us to be able to take that, those priorities into action. So you have the egg freezing special. Can you tell us how we can get involved with you specifically? Now you operate, just bring us up to speed with all of those things. Yeah. Thank you. So, and I truly, I appreciate you being a woman who supports women and bringing me on here. I love, I loved getting, being able to educate and also the exposure. I'll be very honest is nice. You know, I'm at a new practice that I, I was at a previous practice that I loved, but just, you know, for personal reasons, this was a better fit. So I just started here a few months ago. Absolutely love it. And they have, uh, I'm in West LA currently. We're looking to build maybe a little bit another site that might be a little bit more east, but currently in this area. I'm at HRC Fertility. We have this amazing egg freezing special that I was telling Rebecca about because I just, I love being able to give women this. I'm trying to tell all the uh, medical residents, anybody that you know, please spread the word. 6,500, or is it now, I think it was 9,900 for all inclusive. And that's really amazing. And we can also help you with financing with third party lenders, if that helps. And we'll, we'll give you the breakdown and everything like that. You can reach out via Instagram, Sahar Wertheimer MD. You can call HRC Fertility. You can just mention the egg freezing special and we will, you do have to meet some criteria. So I think your age and your reserve has to meet certain criteria. We try to work with patients no matter what, but, you know, just mention the, the special. And then I, I also told Rebecca, I, I just want to um, mention that our IVF pricing is also very competitive and we have an excellent lab. I always say as a reproductive endocrinologist, you're only as good as your embryologist, truly, truly. And our lab is amazing. We're consistently hitting above the national averages and almost all the parameters. And, you know, the, the pricing that we offer, we have uh, a la carte offers, we have packages. So we'll really try to work with you. You know, they, they really try to make sure the doctors don't speak finances because we always mess things up and we promise things that aren't true, (laughs) but we have a financial consultant who will meet with you and really guide you through. She's amazing. So yeah, just reach out. We're happy to help. 
Just an incredible value. I have a really quick question too, just to, before I let you go. But if one of our ladies wants to fly out to LA and she carves off like three weeks and stays at an Airbnb type of thing, is that something that you do, you guys have seen before? Is that? Yeah. I mean, I would be so flattered. Please do fly in. <laughs> but yes, we actually work with international patients very regularly. And we do have patients from other points in the U.S., from South America, from Australia, from China. Yes. So we, we are very good at the remote patient. We can try and get you as much as you need to or can do locally and only fly in for the time that you need. We'll make sure that, you know, we've kind of set you up for success so that you don't come here and then it doesn't work out. Yeah. Many of our ladies work remotely. So it's something oh, it yeah. works for them to travel and they love traveling. So any excuse oh, to yay. travel, like, yes. oh my gosh, let me, let me in LA. They'll, they'll totally be up for that. So that's something that I know. I just, yes. Love. I heard um, if you go shopping on Rodeo Drive, there's like a 99% success rate. See, I love, <laughs> I love, I love all of this experience with you. All the details ladies will be in the show notes. So please connect with Dr. Wertheimer. Like what an incredible time to have with you. So grateful and really looking forward to having you on again. Yes. Back at you. Truly. Thank you. Thank you. 